All right, good morning. It's uh, Monday, the 3rd of November, 2014, and I'm off today. And uh, Pete and I decided that it was time to do Solder Smoke 167, right, Pete? Yes, 167. Here we are. I completely forgot about it. I've been so immersed in melting solder that I, I forgot that the uh, the time was approaching the one-month point where we have to do another another solder smoke and pete reminded me and i i, I said no no i gotta i gotta finish this amplifier so <laughs> that's why we're a little bit late we're not on the weekend it's a monday morning but i'm off and pete's available and so here we go um let's see we're also on eastern standard time so i guess this is the time change edition here we are the uh, eastern standard time anyway good to see you pete what what are you working on tell us what's on your bench well i got a lot on the bench but first I'd like to uh, shout out to a good friend of ours who's uh, now in the south of France, and I wanted to say buongiorno Giovanni Manzoni, a ah, good Giov friend of ours, <laughs> a good friend of ours who's uh, now in the south of France, and he's been involved with uh, yours and my video. So uh, good morning, Giovanni from the left coast. We we good morning from the east coast to Giovanni too. Uh, you know, and people have asked about this, and I don't. We the thing is, we have to be discreet here, Pete. Right. <laughs> because, well, I mean, suffice it to say that there are some issues yes. involving, <laughs> I, well, the witness protection program. Right. I mean, enough said. That's it. Yeah, right, right. Okay. All right. Right. Okay. Those of you who are curious about the, the person who has been producing and directing the videos of, uh, of N6QW and N26QR, um, that's that's all we're going to say. He's a he's a creative genius. Yes, <laughs> and he's yeah. had an interesting life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. what what's on the bench? Well, let me tell you, my my bench is full. And actually, uh, Bill, uh, the value of this podcast that that the listeners don't have is I can see your bench, <laughs> and <laughs> it looks just like my bench looks just like your bench. I've oh, got man, projects. That's a realistic bench, you know. That's that's yeah. it. That's that, that that's the post-project or mid-project chaos. Right. Well, uh, mine looks like that because I've got about three or four activities. Uh, uh, a close friend here, local ham, uh, Ben KK6FUT, and I are have been collaborating on a series of articles for QRP Quarterly, and and the next one is coming up, and so is the deadline. You you know about those deadlines. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so the project uh, series that we're going to be launching here is called Let's Build Something, and it and it follows exactly some of the things we'll talk about today. Is how can you build things uh, so that you could start off in a measured manner uh, with something very small, and and then build that into something much larger. Uh, one of the problems was that Ben and I saw with many of the projects you see in the magazines is um, you need a whole room full of test equipment, you need 30 years of experience, you need a parts bin rivaling Mauser, and, and you know, it's just, it's such an onerous task. And so we're, we're looking to develop this series that will start initially with a uh, direct conversion receiver and ultimately end up with a single sideband transceiver. And uh, in kind of working on this, uh, everything that will be in the first part uh, uh, of the article, the direct conversion receiver, the building modules, is going to be employed in the single sideband transceiver. So what you build initially, just hold on to it because it gets integrated into the final final build. And the other thing I'm happy to report, uh, it's all discrete components. Yay. Common, common components like 2N3904s, 2N3906. 
There's no package del uh, balance mixers, no once, ICs. Once no, again, discretion, yes. discretion is a good thing. It's a virtue. Yes. Right. Yeah. So uh, we'll be, uh, and we're recommending that uh, this be built on a big plywood board so you can see all the circuits and see everything that's going on. Now, in, in parallel with that, uh, I've been uh, very intrigued by a new product offering from Adafruit Industries, which is a uh, small board about the size of a postage stamp, and it's a clock generator. and actually produces three outputs. And uh, the beauty of this is uh, how this can be employed in some of our projects. So one a application is they take the clock generator and generate uh, discrete frequencies for like in a BFO. So you could have a switchable BFO just by throwing a panel switch. You could have the upper sideband BFO or the lower sideband BFO or CW. And there's also some amazing work being done across the world uh, by uh, Jason NT7S uh, up in Oregon, uh, Tom uh, AK2B in New York, and uh, in Poland, I think it's Poland, SQ9JNE, Premzek. Uh, these people are, are working on code uh, so that you can take this and make it both a combination uh, VFO and BFO on one little ch uh, board that costs less dollars. So, I mean, driven by an Arduino, you know, so it's just really amazing. And I, I have that on the bench. I have it working. I have it in a transceiver, and I've actually made contacts with it. So I'm really excited about that. So... The, the bench is full. <laughs> and that's it. Too, too, much, too many projects, not enough time. Well, right. that, that's really exciting. And I, I'm, 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 you know, as, as, as averse I am, as I am to, to the uh, integrated circuits and microcontrollers, you know, I do I get into it. You've, you've kind of encouraged me to get into it. And I had a little adventure of my own in this area because I, took, I wanted to listen to, uh, to 12 meters on my Drake 2B. And uh, I didn't have a crystal. I needed a... I think I needed a 22 or no, I needed a 21 megahertz crystal to get the Drake 2B to inhale on 12 meters, and it's a triple conversion design, so it's kind of complicated. But I went around the junk box and nothing even close. But then I realized I had that uh, Arduino DDS uh, VFO sitting there, so I I took a crystal and chopped the top off of it, and I connected the output from the from the from the uh, DDS board. I realized it was very very low. Low uh, low voltage, so I figured I could just plug it into the uh, into the crystal socket in the back of the Drake 2B, and man, I fired that thing up, and sure enough, that DDS was serving as a uh, synthetic, very synthetic uh, crystal, and I was able to listen to listen to 12 meters on it. Now you're doing things that are a lot more advanced than that. You're doing all of the frequency synthesis for a rig, uh, for BFO and BFO, and that 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 is really really interesting and exciting. Yeah, well, one other. Uh Two comments here. One, there are four videos up in YouTube. If you do a search on N6QW, you can actually see the radio and uh, see the uh, little board in action there. I, I try to take uh, and give a little explanation what's going on, but that the individual chip that's on that board costs a dollar thirty-four cents in single lots from from, and and that's a three output and. When you mentioned the Drake 2B, there's a uh, another version that has eight clock outputs, so you could take that whole frequency scheme <laughs> out, out of the Drake and have eight bands on a chip that doesn't cost much more than that. So I mean, kind of an exciting time with regard to you know low cost parts and uh, what can be done. And one of the uh, one of the things that's been floating around, the minimum guys are looking at this, and there's been some traffic. In, in minima that uh, you know old phase noise and what have you now 
Jason, NT7S, has a blog, and he had uh, phase noise measurements conducted on the chip, and they're posted on his blog. And for a $1.34 chip, pretty dramatic. So uh, I think the issue of phase noise is going to be put to bed, and there's not going to be uh, th this concern over if it's integrated. And I think J Jason says it best, unless you're building a laboratory-grade instrument, uh, these things will work really well in, in you know, homebrew type equipment and amateur equipment. So um, I, I think, you know, the, the state of the art is being advanced and, and a lot of good data is be available says this is a good device. Oh, man, you know, it's really interesting. And I, I yeah, I, I was talking to uh, to Thomas, KK6AHT, uh, uh, about this, one of the guys who's been building the Minima. And he was he was here in, in the D.C. area not long ago. And, and we were talking about, some of the uh, the concerns you know and sometimes you get you get so deep into this stuff that the perfect can be the enemy of the good and especially of the good enough and so it's it sounds like you guys are close to the the good enough point with this chip and it, it sounds like it's going to be really interesting you know pete i'm really struck by the way you just shifted gears you were talking about the let's build something project with all discrete components and then just without missing a breath <laughs> you, without missing a beat, you moved on to the uh the eight output uh, SI uh, chip there, but that's 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 kind of cool. I mean, that's like, I guess that's where we're 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 operating these days, and you know, yeah. there, there are yeah. advantages of both worlds. Before I forget, I want to make an offer here. I want to do something because last time when we were talking about, and you just mentioned it, the need to start simple. We're going back to the simple end of the spectrum, and the direct conversion receivers, and the need to start simple. Um, you know, we last time we did the show, we were encouraging people to produce to, to start with like a a simple, you know, uh, single stage oscillator. oscillator, right? Yeah. And you know, we we had some folks kind of email us asking about, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a crystal. I want to build the Michigan Mighty Might or something similar, but I don't have the crystal. Well, I realized that I got I have a small bag of 3.579 color burst crystals here in the uh, in my junk box and uh, I'm never going to use all of them I bought them for a, an IF filter project for the bare bones superhead by Doug Dumas but if there's anybody out there who sincerely is planning on building a Michigan Mighty Might it, send me a self-addressed stamped envelope and I will return to you a 3579 crystal <laughs> we'll do it that way um, and uh, if you need my address, just just shoot me an email at uh, soldersmoke at yahoo.com. We'll, we'll make the arrangements. But uh, it'd be really kind of cool to see people out there building little Michigan Mighty Mites or other similar single-stage oscillators. Because once you've done that, you've crossed the threshold and you have built a transmitter. Even if you don't know how to use Morse code, even if you don't intend to put it on the air, you will have built a, a, an RF-generating transmitter. So... Uh, send us a send me a uh, a self-addressed stamped envelope. We'll send you back a crystal, and you'll be on your way. The parts are all real simple. You know, you can. I think the the coil the coil they uh, they tune on a uh, they they wind on a um, thirty-five millimeter film can, something like that. So a fun project. We know a couple are underway out there, and if you need crystals, let me know. By the way, Bill, if your bag runs out. Let me know. <laughs> I got a bag too. <laughs> Man, this is you know this is one of the benefits that we have now. There's a lot of these crystals out there, and the computer era has uh, 
has also brought benefits because now there's all kinds of crystals out there, really cheap. And these are the crystals that oh, are going yeah. into our uh, into our homebrew crystal crystal filters. All right, so you you you've had a, you've got some interesting bench activity there, uh, uh, Pete. But uh, you know, uh, I've had some uh, I've had some adventures here too. You've been helping me along with the oh, communications yeah. concepts. You know, I, I I say this with real trepidation. You know, I, I what I'm about to say here could get me expelled from the GQRP club. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I, that, that, that membership is very important to me, but, uh, and I don't think I will be because I recently got a, um, a sort of a, a theological ruling from the Reverend George Dobbs, you know, and I, I, I kind of, I, you, I went, I think I did this through Tony Fishpool and I, I asked, you know, whether it would be okay for me to build an amplifier that goes beyond uh, five Watts or 10 Watts PEP phone. And I, I got, yes, I was given the okay. I was give, given the beneplacito, the thumbs up from a GQRP headquarters. So with that, uh, I followed your lead and I built an amplifier that you built, I think, 18 years ago, right? Right, yes. All right, let me, let me, let me explain. I, we talked a little bit about this in previous episodes and we've done some, uh, some um, YouTube videos on it. But I have long been on the lookout for an amplifier that will take me from QRP levels up to, uh, you know, 100, 150 watts, something like that. You'll recall that for a long time, I was casting kind of a covetous eye on the RF compartment of my Heathkit HW101. That, that Heathkit HW101 came close to cannibalization several times. My idea was, I'm not going to use the rest of this rig. It's given me all kinds of problems. But the, uh, the, the two 6146s in there have, have, you know, all the socketry and tuning circuits. And uh, I have the power supply so I could just turn that thing into a, a linear amplifier running two 6146s and off I'd go. And a lot of people said, don't do it, don't do it. And, but I didn't listen to a couple. I actually had the thing on the bench and I was about ready to start chopping it up and pulling out boards and everything else. But I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I didn't have the heart to do it. I like that HW101. And I may someday, you know, actually go in there and get it running right. It's a beautiful rig. So I I didn't do it. Anyway, the other thing is I didn't want to mess around with high voltage because I haven't been doing that in a long time. And I've been used to poking my fingers into circuits that are energized, which is okay at 13 volts, but not too cool at 800 or 1,000. So anyway, that's when... The idea, I think you gave me the idea, Communications Concepts Incorporated, CCI. And I went to the website. They have a kit there called an EB63A. Now, generally, I prefer scratch-built homebrew. I'm not really all that into uh, kits. I think you get a lot of, you have a lot of fun doing the, the, the actual Manhattan-style, kind of freestyle, um, glue pads to the board kind of construction. But... Man, the thought of doing that with RF levels at 100, 150 watts. I can, I can barely get RF amplifiers to, to get stable at 5 watts. So, I mean, I, I really think this is one of those moments where discretion is the better part of valor. <laughs> and that CCI amp, it's been around a long time, right, that design? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a Motorola application note. Uh, that goes back to, uh, I think, the 70s and 80s, some of them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it so it's a 
it's a proven, not only is it a proven design, I think more important, it's a proven layout because this is where you really get the uh, a sense of. That's the trick. Yeah, it's, it's not just having a design that's going to be stable, but it's having a board and parts placement and grounding and lead length and all those things that contribute to stability in an amplifier, having it just right. So uh, I looked, Communications Concepts has some great kits. I like the EB63A. One of the reasons is it's the amplifier that doesn't have any ICs in it. It's all discrete. But really all it is is two Motorola transistors in push-pull um, with two with an input transformer and an output transformer. They, they come already constructed. And all you really have to do is put the parts on the board. And then the real tricky part is putting those two transistors on an adequately sized heat sink. And that's where we get into the tap adventures. <laughs> tap, tap, tap. <laughs> this is where the tribal knowledge yeah, from the yeah. left coast became very important. Because I, um, you know, when I, when I, I got, uh, Elisa got me the, uh, the kit for my birthday and back in September. And so a number of things were going on. I didn't get a chance to work on it. I started working on it a little bit. And I, when I pulled out the instruction book, um, they talked about how you had to get an adequately sized heat sink and then tap 440 holes, holes for 440 screws. It wasn't just a matter of drilling the holes in there, but you had to then tap it. You had to put the threads so that you could screw 440 screws into the holes that you just produced. And I had never done this. And this is where it's good sometimes to get out of your comfort zone. And uh, so I started poking around, how am I going to do this? There's a lot of stuff on, on YouTube on how to do it. And a lot of it was, was useful. I just generally got an idea. I went out and ordered uh, a set, a drill and tap set from Vermont American. And it comes with a, a drill bit that's perfect size. And then the most important item is this tap, which basically is a, a carbide steel sort of like a drill bit but you have to screw it in and you have to screw it in i found out very carefully because uh, pete warned me he said you know you got to do it a certain way you got to use some oil you got to put a lot of oil in there you got to turn it like a couple of turns three turns then take it out clean it off oil do it again and as usual i only followed like half the instructions because i started screwing that thing in pete warned me he said you're going to break it and sure enough, I did because I just kept on tightening the thing. It was go. It seemed like it was going okay. So I figured, well, I'll just screw this thing in one time, take it out, boom, there you got the threads. No, but then all of a sudden I was turning it, turning it, and it got a little bit tight and clack, the whole thing broke. So now I have a broken tap bit inside the hole. I can't get it out. I have to start the whole process over again. Anyway, it's a long, sad story. I got it in a YouTube video up on the blog site if you want to take a look because uh, – you know, see a picture's worth a thousand words, a video's worth a lot more, because I really learned how to do this, and actually kind of got into it, <laughs> thanks to <laughs> yeah, Pete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is kind of tricky, but um, we, we got that done, but uh, yeah, that, that, that's a good, I think, Pete, that's a good example of tribal knowledge, some of this stuff, you yes. just got to learn how to do it. Yeah, and you know, uh, just for the purist, uh, because I know you did get an email on this, uh, they said, uh, uh, quote, Pete is wrong, don't use oil, use kerosene. Uh, technically, uh, tapping in aluminum is probably more easily facilitated with kerosene, but I don't like 
kerosene because it's more flammable than three in one oil. Yeah, you, so, see, you see that workbench behind me? Yeah, you know, yeah. We do yeah. not need to add kerosene to that to that mix of chaos. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, know, like you got so, the, I mean, you got the soldering iron that's always falling yeah, over. Yeah. You got the power supply that's heating up. Too yeah, much. yeah. O o oil is good for steel, and kerosene is a preferred one. But if you take your time and just watch Bill's video up on the blog site, watch his video because. That that is really superb. It shows exactly how it should be done, and some tools. You built some s small tooling to make it um, facilitate the job. So a absolutely, you did it was it, great fun. I, I I put in the video. I really like this part of it because it's um. It, it, I guess this is where you're at the opposite end of the spectrum from working on, you know, surface mount uh, components and Arduino, uh, because here with this thing, you're actually drilling holes in metal. You're getting, you know, three-in-one oil all over your hands. You're getting some yeah, cuts and got the dicks. smell. Get that you got the smell. Yeah. Your hands get tired. You get cal I got calluses. I still got calluses. <laughs> this is really great. And it, it, around this time, I found a video on um, on uh, Vimeo of this uh, crazy Japanese guy who builds his own motorcycles. And there's yeah. a lot of scenes in there of him cutting metal and bending aluminum and everything else. And I, I felt solidarity. So I, you know, it's a real kind of workshop kind of thing so that that was that was fun but anyway okay. Uh, okay so i got the board filled with components i got the transistors very very snugly and securely mounted to the heat sink i had an adequately sized box we dropped the box we dropped the whole board and heat sink arrangement into the top of the chassis and then uh then we started the low pass filter adventure this is uh this was kind of interesting i think this was an interesting process First of all, I had to, you know, I, I, we needed a low-pass filter, obviously. But, uh, you know, I had never really built anything this big before. So my, my question was, how big should the, the toroidal cores be? And the answer came out from the, from the CCI manual. They recommended T106. That's 1.06 inches in diameter. The big, big things. And so I went on to eBay and bought a bunch of them. And... Uh, my idea is that I'm going to do, I'm going to have in there eventually three or four different low-pass filters for the various bands. But of course, I was starting out with 17. I got an idea from from Farhan's RF386 page. And I saw this someplace else too. You know, 17 and 20 meters are so close in frequency, and they're not harmonically related. So if you are careful and you select the cutoff frequency for the 17 meter low pass filter, you should be able to use the same filter for 20 meters for 14 megs. In other words, you, you, you pick a filter, you cut it for, you design it for a cutoff of around 20 megahertz. And then when you think about it, the second harmonic from 14 megahertz is up at 28. So you're already knocking down the second harmonic from 20 meters. So there's no need for another filter. Also, you don't really have to worry so much about the second harmonic on this kind of amplifier because it's push-pull. So the amplifier itself, the, the physical configuration of the two push-pull transistors are knocking down pretty much all of the even harmonics going along. You have to worry about odd harmonics. So the first one you have to worry about is the third harmonic, which is way into the cutoff zone for both 20 meters and 17. So... Farhan did something similar with the uh, the the, uh, the low pass filters for his RF three eighty six amplifier for the minima, and 
I did I did the same thing with this one. So I built I have in there now one low pass filter, and it's cut for it's actually designed for uh, 18 megahertz, 17 meters, but it'll also allow uh, 14 uh, megahertz, 20 meter signals to go through with no problem. But I put that in there, and uh, then it came time to think about another element here, and this is something that you know I was I was thinking about this, Pete. I was reading uh, Farhan's a Bidex article, original Bidex article, and one of the things he said was that one of the reasons he kept the uh, the Bidex at about six watts was he um, he he said he he only had a power supply that would handle that amount of power, and I was in the same situation. All I looked around the shack, the the uh, the heaviest duty power supply I have in the shack at that point was about five amps, and that's not going to cut it for for 100 150 watts. Nope. So you need uh, the the CCI um, booklet said you need a power supply of about uh, 30 amps at 13.6 volts. So I, I I briefly considered doing this sort of uh, you know analog style you know just without a switching supply, and man I was dissuaded very very quickly when I started looking at the size of the iron that would be needed to handle 30 amps that way. It's just not doable. Pretty city. <laughs> oh, man, it's big. And I, I, I figured, oh, I'll just go to the junk box. I'll find a transformer, yeah. put in a bridge rectifier, some big capacitors. Man, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and all the transformers I had were rated nowhere near 30 amps. So it just that just wasn't going to happen. And that's when you mentioned the magic word, Samlex. Yes. <laughs> yes, Samlex. Samlex is a, an amazing company. They do switch mode DC power supplies. I think they're involved also in a lot of kind of uh, uh, converters or inverters from uh, you know DC to AC inverters for uh, for power systems. But they have a great little uh, um, uh, 30 amp uh, switch mode DC power supply called the SEC 1235, and I got the M model. M. Meters, yes, meters. <laughs> <laughs> the M stands for meters. You could get this thing without meters, but this thing, mine has two beautiful meters. One there for voltage, and one, the most, the coolest one, amperes, right? And so the whole thing comes in this neat little box. I mean, it's about the size, if you open your hand, it's about the size of your open hand. It's about the size of a, of a large book that's about it Very 400 page book that's, yeah, that's yeah. The stand. 400 yeah. page book about yeah. a 400 page book that's it it's it's not huge it's very light there's no heavy iron in there not only that a lot you know you know switch mode power supplies have a bad rep for generating all kinds of ugly rf this thing doesn't this thing they actually have in the manual that it's it's specifically designed to meet fcc requirements i don't know i don't notice any kind of hash or any kind of noise when i turn it on Anyway, the, the moment of truth was, was uh, approaching. It also has a built-in thermal fan. Yeah. It senses the heat, and it's a quiet fan. Yep. So, you know, you know, if you're doing RTTY or something like that, really sucking up the amps, it'll just float right along with it. That's right. No, it's, it's, it's really nice. So, the, I, was, I guess when, it, when was it? It was Saturday that I was getting this whole thing done. The, uh, the Samlax uh, uh, supply had come in the mail. So had the big fat. 106 toroids so i i went oh one thing i want to mention when you're designing L low pass filters there's a program out there that you really got to use elsie e-l-s-i-e 
like Elsie the cow, but it's also a joke. Ha ha. L C L C inductance compatence. Yeah. Elsie. Yeah. But if you look for it, don't look for it, the letters LC. Think LC the cow. E L S I E. It's a free program, and man, it is really. I, I I love that program because the thing is, you know, you'll see a design for a low pass filter, and it might not be exactly the cutoff frequency that you want. You might want to know what you know what's going to be the attenuation. You know, five megahertz out or something like that. Or also, you might want to know. You might want to look, when you look through your junk box, you might find capacitors that are close, but not quite there. So you, what this thing allows you to do is you design the thing on the screen, and then you can actually tune the parts. You can change the capacitor values, and it'll instantaneously show you what this does to the characteristics of the filter. Really, really good, useful program. Very easy to use. The learning curve is not at all steep. Elsie, uh, check it out. But anyway, I, I built the filter. And, it, you know, these things always take you a little bit longer than you thought. And I was, I was anxious. I wanted to get this thing going. You know how it is. And you had warned me. You had, you, had, you had warned me about some trials and tribulations that you had when you built yours 18 years ago. And I said, I'm going to follow Pete's advice. <laughs> I'm going to be very careful. But, you know, here's the other thing. Usually when you're in, approaching the end point of a project, the clock is ticking. Because usually at this point in the morning, in my case, the family is waking up. They're getting ready for breakfast. They're getting ready to go out. We're going to do whatever we're going to do that day. And the window of opportunity for you to finish this project is closing. All right? So you want, to, you want to get that. This is a formula for disaster, my friends. You're better off waiting until the next day. Put it off. Stop. But I didn't do that, of course. No, I wanted to finish it. But so I, I very carefully laid everything out on the workbench. The workbench is a lot cleaner than it is now. And I had the Bidex 17. I had the Samlex Supply. I had the amplifier. I had my uh, my my Ryko, um scope fired up. I had a dummy load to test everything, and I had it all set. And I said, "Okay, I'm ready to go." And I fire everything up, and I I grab the microphone, and I just give it a little like that to see what happens. And sure enough, very very encouraging. The the amp meter kicks up, kicks up, up to about kicks up to about 5 or 10 amps. So far, so good. But I notice on the power out meter that I have in line, nothing. Nothing's coming out. Ah, That's not good. Got a lot of gazinta, but nothing gazata. Man. (laughs) As I recall, you had similar problems 18 years ago. Yeah, yeah. What happened with yours? Well, here's where sometimes it pays to double check things. <laughs> uh, when I when I bought uh, when I bu- actually the model I have is the AN762, which is almost exactly like Bill's, except Bill has a built-in core carrier operated relay. The 762 is essentially the same board without the core, so you have to provide your own switch the amplifier uh, relay circuit. So I I also bought from CCI. The low-pass filter, they sell these low-pass filter boards. Bill homebrewed his, but you can buy this board, and I bought the one for 20 meters. So uh, I, I hooked it up like Bill did, and I looked at the output, and I was getting 60 watts. And I'm saying, man, this is not right. This thing is capable of doing a lot more than 60 watts. So I said, maybe it doesn't have enough input. So I kept cranking the input, and guess what? I put 10 watts into that thing, and I smoked the transistors. So, Ouch. and and that's when I took a look at the filter and I, I, I don't know, maybe I did it wrong, 
But I suspect that the information on the low-pass filter that CCI supplied is incorrect. Yeah. Now, Elsie, Elsie would have fixed that problem. And I, I wrote CCI and said, look, I built these things, and they're wrong. And then what I did is I found uh, the filters from W3NQN, who, who uses the LC program. I built it that way, put it in there after I put a new set of transistors in there. Yeah. And guess what? I got like 130 watts out of it. So yeah, there's, no, there's no joke either because those, uh, those transistors I checked before I started doing all this are $85 a pair. Yeah. Wow. Holy you don't want to smoke them. You don't oh, want to smoke man. them. Yeah. yeah so I, I did one of the tests that I did before I fired this whole thing up was I wanted to sweep the, uh, the LC filter, sweep the low-pass filter. So I, I use using my uh, my signal generator, which is based on, again based on Farhan's uh, 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 um, kind of what he calls it like the uh, soft drink soda straw oscillator that that he made. He he went I think he went to McDonald's or Burger King with his kids and realized that the soda straw would be a good core coil form coil form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I got something similar in my uh, signal generator. And uh, so I, I hooked it up, and I was using the uh, the uh, Ryko scope as the detector, and I then I would just sweep all the way up, and sure enough, it was passing everything. It let 20 meters through, and it let uh, 17 meters through, and so everything looked like it. You know, it wasn't going to get into a situation similar to what you faced. I think we we actually did sweep the CCI. We do, in Elsie we built the CCI low-pass filter, and we did indeed find that it was cutting off uh, into, the, into the 20-meter band. So you, your problems were... Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. need to circle back and tell them why you didn't see any output. Ah, let's get to the story. Yeah, this is getting to the scary part. All right, so I'm thinking, gosh, what is this? There's no output. Holy cow. Wow, I've got, got the... L I know the, the, the low-pass filter will pass it. Everything's hooked up right. Uh, you know, as you, as you're going through these kind of tests, you gotta, you know, you really gotta proceed carefully. I have it. I have the thing running on a current limited supply, so if it suddenly pulls a whole lot of, well, parts of it anyway. I mean, I I, I can watch that on the, with the Samlex. I can watch how much current it's pulling. I'm keeping an eye on temperature. I got my hand on the on the heat sink and occasionally open it up, putting my fingers on the transistors, and that's when I discovered the problem. I had the uh, the board the CCI board with the amplifier and all that. And then I had the other board for the low-pass filter. I had all the connections. The input connection was fine. The output connection was fine. But there was another important connection that just wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> In my haste, I had failed to take the output from the amplifier board and run a little bit of coaxial cable to the input of the low-pass filter. So the output was just sitting there nothing on it that's really hazardous because you could really blow those things up pretty quick oh yeah yeah but fortunately you had a, fortunately you had an open circuit there yeah i know <laughs> fortunately i didn't i didn't do it it didn't blow it up or anything like that but oh yeah you know I, I, we discovered as i as i told you amplifiers don't work too well that way so i, I went in there and, and put in a, a piece of uh, coax and uh, all is well and man i'm telling you i am having a lot of fun with this thing Combined with the Moxon antenna, I am like, you know, I feel like I'm the king of 17 meters. Everybody wants to call me. Before, nobody, people were reluctant to answer my CQs because I was kind of down in the noise. Now, everybody wants to talk to me. At the end of every conversation, people are lining up to say hello. 
it's just great, great fun. I've, uh, I've, I've really been, been used, been having a, a great time with, I worked all kinds of Europeans. I worked Morocco the other morning, all kinds of stateside contacts. I even, I even got into trouble with the, uh, with the barbarians who were trying to get into the Fox Tango Four Tango Alpha <laughs> the expedition. <laughs> this is really an unaccustomed experience for me. I uh, I was calling CQ on what I thought was a clear frequency. I had checked, but somehow I had I was inside the what they considered the the twenty kc listening zone for this uh, this de expedition to some rock out in the Indian Ocean, <laughs> and man. They, those guys are not very uh, not very courteous, uh, Pete. They oh back. yeah. No oh, man. Yeah. They uh, they use a lot of language that's prohibited by the FCC right off the bat too. I mean, it's, some of these guys they I think they they need to get back on their meds or something because they were just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a little bit too too concerned about about me being there. Anyway, but like I said, this is I guess this is a sign of the effectiveness of the amplifier. I'm getting yeah. in there with the big guns. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, you know, seventeen meters. I think is a is a band that's neglected by some people, and they shouldn't because uh, uh, with with a modest power, and I'm saying like not two kilowatts, but a hundred watts. Uh, that's a big signal. That oh man, I know it's, it's it's great fun. And seven, it's it, you know, when when you get a situation like this with the de expedition, it's kind of unfortunate because it really goes against the whole kind of uh, atmosphere of 17 meters which is very laid back it's a rag chewing band it's not not at all competitive no contests now but there are kind of infringements on this and i don't want to get into a big thing about it but this kind of de-expedition really doesn't fit in very well it's a small band and when they say they're going to be listening up 20 i mean they're taking up half the band the other thing that goes on now lately is a lot of this w1aw centennial activity Oh yeah. I mean, and it's like it's 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 in essence bringing a, a contest into what should be what's supposed to be a contest-free band. So, kind of galling that it's being done by the AWRL too. I mean, I I, I that kind of I think that's I think that's an a, an inappropriate use for the band. But but anyway, but anyway, I have great fun. I've been working all kinds of stations and uh, and 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 having having a terrific time with this amplifier. So thanks, Pete, for all the advice and encouragement and. Uh, and uh, and uh, kind of war stories from the from the work that should really help me out a lot. Bill, Bill, I want to have a small drum roll because I'm going to introduce a piece of tribal knowledge here that that might have <laughs> that might have been might have been helpful to you. And it was something that I had never thought of, and something that got sent to me in one of those emails. I actually got it from my sister, where she's. Uh, 101 helpful hints and using things that you never thought of. And, and this guy wanted to install one of these uh, power bars. You know, the typical power bars you can plug computers into. And also it's got, a, it's got some limiting in there, you know, uh, lighting protection and everything else. Uh, you know, you typically should have those on a computer circuit. And, and they're built so that you can mount them on the wall. Most people just run them on the floor, but you can mount them on the wall or workbench. And the problem is, especially mounting in the wall, how in the heck do you drill the holes so it should match the holes? So let me tell you what this guy did. Many of us have uh, printers that are also scanners. So he puts the power bar right on top of the scanner, makes a print of it, and guess what? He has a picture of the holes. He tapes that on the wall <laughs> and drill the two holes here. That's brilliant. Perfect. That's brilliant. Perfect. <laughs> so you could have taken that PC board. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that, that is that is really great. And certainly they didn't they never thought of that when they were when they wrote up the Motorola design notes. Yeah. Because what they told you to do is actually take the board, put it up on top of the uh, the heatsink before you put the components on, mark it and drill it. But that would have yeah. been a lot better because then I could have yeah. gone ahead and I could have gone ahead and started working on the board before I uh, before I even got the uh, the, the heatsink. Yeah, and the thing is, you can take that. The other thing, the board moves around. I can't hold those things steady, so you have to tape it on there. Whereas you could take the, you have the paper template. And I said, I looked at that. And I said, Oh man, <laughs> I just picked up a new piece of tribal knowledge here. So, get your uh, printer scanner, scan the part, make a print of it. Now you got a picture template that's absolutely one hundred percent a replication of exactly what you want to do. So, Oh, man. Excellent. Piece of tribal knowledge. <laughs> there you go. Well, you had some more tribal knowledge. You had a list of things that you yes, wanted to mention. Yes, So why don't, you, why don't yes. you hit us with a few more of those things? Okay. Well, uh, one of the things, uh, and you covered this, all circuits should have protective diodes. And this is to prevent you taking your very expensive board that you just bought, and you put the minus to the plus and the plus to the minus, and you smoke everything. Yeah. So protective diode, Bill, I, I can't emphasize that. You you mentioned it several podcasts ago that uh, that was really important. Yeah, you, uh, know, you know, what what people I think need to know it's really simple. Like on this on this amplifier, on the uh, uh, at the connection where the uh, the plus you know thirteen point six volts DC was coming in. I just took a big diode and put it in there reversed to ground, right? Yeah. So what'll happen is if I ever get it backwards and switch the leads around, man, that thing will just blow the fuses in the power supply instantly before it does any damage to the circuitry. Now, there are more elegant ways that you could do this. Some people, you could put the diode in line and you could put a, put a fuse there. But at the very least, you should have some diode in there to prevent you from blowing this thing up when in a you know in a, in a moment of haste and fatigue you reverse it we've all done it and if you don't if you don't do this kind of early on in the project man that's a that's a bad moment right and that that also takes care of the problem you just mentioned a few minutes ago about things in haste you know the family wants you to go somewhere yeah. and you say well oh, just two seconds of the coke Boom. a few more a few more wires that i could have this thing and and, and then what happens is yeah, yeah, it, the smoke goes out, and you got to leave. That's <laughs> really bad. And then you're then you're not in a great mood for the for the family yeah, event that follows yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, so, thing on so your so mind. save yourself some grief. The other thing that I've adopted is uh, what I call a wiring standard, and uh, this is where uh, it it pays to invest in several spools of wire, uh, different colors, and uh, I'll you know typically use the red and black for the power leads, uh, including uh, you know making sure you have the protective diode in there. But I have standardized that I use orange and yellow wire for interconnections. And like in a transceiver, anything associated with the receive circuit is wired with orange wiring. And anything on the transmit circuit is with yellow wiring. Uh -huh. And later on, <laughs> when you have to go troubleshoot something and you wonder, where is this thing? You know, like especially with Manhattan. You, you have to picture in your mind, how do they connect this up? If you use the orange colored wire for the receive circuits and the yellow colored wire, you can pick any standard you want, but it's a lot easier isolating, finding out where did that go. And I, I, I got to tell you, it's paid off big dividends. So You know, I, I did the same thing on the BIDX um, because the BIDX, because of the way it, trans, way it switches from R to T, there's a, basically a, a series of, there's a whole power line that is activated 
when you're on receive, and then there's a completely separate line right. that goes to separate diodes on transmit. So I was just in my mind, I said, how am I going to keep this straight? And I said, red for receive. So all the lines that were going to the R points on the amplifier stages was in, or it was in red, and then I had green, and I figured, well, green, I'll make green transmit, do it that way. And then I, for all of the audio and AF, I used this, uh, this Belden, um, you know, Teflon um, coax that I've been talking about. And so that was easy to visualize. But, but I agree, you know, you've got to try to keep this uh, easily recognizable when you go in there. And, and color coordination is a, a good way to do it. Yeah, and typically, too, in a big Manhattan circuit board, you got stuff all over the place. And, uh, you know, I also tend to think not about building everything on one big board. Build a bunch of mod modules, yeah. and and then it's easier to say, well, where's the audio module? You know, where's the balance modulator? So I mean, just just your preference. And which gets to the other point is, um, when I buy parts, I, I took a take a good hard look at uh, what what buying in parts in bulk. Like for instance, you can buy a hundred one N forty one forty eight diodes for for about three bucks if you buy yeah there you go he's holding the that, bag of parts that, that's 12904 2n3904 transistors a hundred of them for three bucks yeah yeah there you go three three dollars and and you know like i was my diode example if you bought uh, 10 diodes they're 10 cents a piece so you can get 10 diodes for a dollar you can get 100 for three dollars i mean yeah. the, the math is real simple and uh, so I think from this standpoint, uh, the other thing, too, is to ad adopt certain standards like, uh, for instance, in this Let's Build Something, we challenged ourselves to try to use as few part numbers as possible that, that are different. And uh, most of the circuitry in Let's Build Something, there's two and 3904s, two and 3906s, oh. uh, one uh, of the two N thirty eight sixty six and one IRF five ten, but everything else. Now Farhan did this in the Bedex, yeah. and, and as a matter of fact, uh, I tested his initial design by putting all kind of NPN transistors in there, and it worked with all of them. So that's it. Yeah. So, so that that's that's really good. And the other thing too is um, having the right kind of tools. Uh, I, I can't overemphasize this. Invest in some. A good quality set of uh, needle nose pliers. <laughs> I mean, you you know you you're tempted by this dollar ninety five special. Don't get get yourself a, a really good pair, and and invest in some tools like taps. Not now now Bill has some taps <laughs> in, in in his arsenal, and uh, you, you know the other thing too is I think uh, we've talked about this before. Think real hard about getting a a basic list of test equipment now. I received an email from a ham uh, offshore, and he was saying that he he I have a on my website I have uh, my adventures with a, a Yesu FTDX100, which was built in the in the 60s, and he said he got one of those, and he was encouraged by what he saw on, on the the article I had posted there, and he he was all excited about it, and he said, but he wasn't quite sure on what power he was getting out of it, so he said I don't have an SWR bridge. <laughs> I don't have a dummy load. <laughs> I don't have an oscilloscope. And I'm saying, he said, well, how should I measure power? So he was about to uh, go to Friedrichshaven, uh, the, the big ham fest. This was this past weekend in Germany. And he was going to pick up some, some spare tubes in that. Well, luckily, he bought an SWR power meter. And when he got home, he found out he, found out he was putting out 70 watts. So, you know, I don't know how you can have a ham station without having an SWR bridge <laughs> Yeah. power meter 
uh, and, and a dummy load. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know how you do that. So these are things that when you're touring ham fests and look at, looking around garage sales, uh, if you can spot, uh, and, and the SWR bridges, by the way, a lot of people were in the CB a long time ago and they had an SWR bridge and now they're out of it and you can, 50 cents, you can buy an SWR bridge at a garage sale. Yep. So there, there you go. This, this is just basic type of stuff you need that you have to have in the shack. And, uh, I told him if he had an oscilloscope on a dummy load, that was probably the most accurate way to measure the power output. And I think you did that on your. I did uh, on this uh, on this latest adventure here. Yeah. yeah, that's how I did it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, uh, you. The scope gonna... is also nice too because when you're doing it, you're getting a sense of how good <clears throat> the signal is. Also, if it's a, if yeah, it's, if it's a nice sine wave, you're looking in pretty good shape. If it's, you know, it, if it's sixty or seventy watts, but it's ugliest. Yeah, it's ugly. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. well, it's and, ugly. <laughs> and and then uh, having some basic uh, reference text, and I, I'm going to sound like a broken record that if you can find a copy of the solid state design <laughs> manual from from Wes Hayward, that's probably where I would invest some money. And they're pretty pricey if you try to buy them on Amazon, but you might might find one somewhere. Well, you know, and, we're we're responsible for that price increase. Uh, oh. oh, oh. <laughs> because we're we're secretly running a, a, a mutual fund, a retirement fund. It's the yeah. Drake the Drake Two B Solid State Design for the Radio Amateurs Investment Index Fund. Yeah, yeah, doing quite well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Let let, let me just share a, a recent example uh, on this. Let's build something. Uh, my my co-author there, Ben. Uh, this is going to have a uh, bandpass filter in there. So um, I had uh, written an article uh, here on a. Several years ago in QRP quarter, and I said, "Here, use this, use this uh, bandpass filter calculation." I said, "And build it like this." Well, I learned something from Hayward uh, a long time ago. When he writes an article and he'll put uh, capacitance values for bandpass filters, he'll usually use a fixed and a trimmer. Yeah. And 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 like for instance, if you needed 185 picofarad, instead of putting 185 picofarad in there, he'll put a fixed 150. And it'll put a little trimmer at 60. So the, some of those two put you right in the range. You may need to tweak things a little bit. And you may need things move around depending on while you're right, right, you know, built the coils and what have you. So the thing is, the solid state design manual, the beauty of that is it shows you how to calculate <laughs> the bandpass filter. Yeah. Now, so, some of the later stuff, there's computer programs that you just stuff values in. But if you need a custom thing, it's like you were mentioning with the LC. You can go in there and tweak things. And and I keep that manual mainly for that bandpass filter yeah. <laughs> calculation. You know, I can go in the table. I know the formulas. I know how to do it. And if I need something special, uh, I, I I have at hand the skill set to do that because I just follow what Hayward says. Do this, do this, do this, and then here's your values. So, you know, that's a really good experience. And um uh, you know, the other option is to uh, to invest in some of these uh, uh, IF transformers that uh, Mauser sells, the 42 IF123. And you can pull the caps out of the bottom and tweak those things up. So they, they make a really nice package, a small package. You can add some capacitors in there. But learning how to do, learning how to calculate a bandpass filter, <laughs> low-pass filter, it was my whole point. You know how to do that. You can build any rig you want to. Because yeah. those are two key critical elements. And and I'm going to say this over and over again. Noodle before you solder. <laughs> yeah. Noodle before you solder. And yeah. and that's so important because sometimes you just go solder stuff and you don't know what you're doing. 
And and then the other thing too is I want to mention this is kind of critical when working with uh, some of the uh, the solid state equipment uh, like the the Arduinos and what have you. Have an isolated soldering iron. Who doesn't have an oscillated soldering iron? What? <laughs> I'm raising my hand here. I don't even know what you're talking about. What, what, isolated from what? Well, it's a grounded soldering iron. Yeah. And, and the reason is is that uh, if you don't do that, you, you run the risk of electrostatic discharge <laughs> when, you're, when you're soldering that small Listen, little surface mod component. <laughs> I live life with the risk of electrostatic discharge. I mean, every time, you know, how about those things you're supposed to put around yeah, your wrist yeah. and everything else? Does anybody actually do that other than people who are working it for NASA? Because, well, I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you what I do. I, um, and it's based on experience. Uh, I always touch something metal yeah. to, to discharge myself. And Especially in the I've, winter. You know, people, people, yeah. it depends on the part of the world that you're living in. But if you're living yeah. in dry northern climates, man, the wintertime comes and you, you take off that sweater and you hear that snap, crackle, and pop. Man, you're talking about thousands of volts there. Yeah. And, and I should tell you, I was building a transceiver with an LCD display. I blew three LCD displays. Because I even got near it, it jumped for me right to the front panel. I blew out and the front. Wiped I blew, everything. I blew out the front end of a DX, of a Radio Shack DX three ninety shortwave receiver, with taking my sweater off and then grabbing the, yeah. the little portable radio, and I, I realized that what they had in the front end, they had some some FETs in the front end, and they didn't even have diode protection on it. Because a lot of times they'll have a couple of diodes across yeah. the front end to allow that to, to discharge to ground, but nope. Oof, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So these are these are just basic things. And, you know, we've mentioned these over and over again in these podcasts, but they're pretty basic. And, and yet, I'll, you know, I'll get an email saying, no, I don't have a dummy load. No, <laughs> I don't have a power meter. These are, if you're going to do any work, uh, you know, these are kind of basic instruments. And uh, I'm happy to report this guy went to Friedrichshaven and he came home with an SWR power meter. So he, he now knows what his rigs are putting out so that's kind of important hey you know you mentioned you mentioned dummy loads and i, I just got a, a somebody uh uh dennis anderson the proprietor of uh of kanga products in the uk was kind enough just this week to send me a one of a product they have the kanga smd surface mount dummy load i have it here it's a, a neat little kit and uh i mean if you're looking for a dummy load this is a good way to go also you get practice in, uh, it's like a self-training kit for a uh, soldering surface mount. And you just you solder a whole bunch of these little resistors on the board. You end up with a nice little dummy load. And you learn how to surface mount solder in the same way. So check that out at uh, kangaproducts.co.uk. Okay, here, here's what I told the guy to do to build a dummy load. Yeah. Get yourself 1K resistors. Get 20 of them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then get two pieces of single-sided PC board. Uh, and drill a bunch of holes, and then connect it on both ends. And I so now you have a ten watt dummy load, and get a jar of uh, peanut oil. <laughs> Hold on a second, I'm going to show you something. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yes, okay. got that's one. It. That's it. That's it. And I said, put in a jar of peanut oil, and I said, you can do a hundred watts with that thing. <laughs> I don't have the peanut oil, but I got the. The 1,000 ohm resistors. I had, that yeah. actually started out as a kind of an attenuator for a satellite project, but it serves as a pretty good dummy load too. Yeah, I mean, these are there are things that you can build, but uh, you know, don't cut corners when it comes to things like put a dummy load in this other than a light bulb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, got the light bulb thing. Yeah, 
All right. Well, that's some that's some good tribal knowledge there, uh, Pete. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is I mean, this may be a kind of a uh, kind of a painful question, but you know, I, I have been kind of uh, scornful and disparaging of the uh, the microcontroller part of the hobby, even though I've been getting into it. I, I realize it's important to do something new to get out of your comfort zone. I can't keep making the same VXO circuits for the rest of my life. Technology marches on, and we have to move with it. But I've been listening, I've been monitoring the, the back and forth on Arduinos between you and Colin. And man, there is a lot of difficulty there, a lot of kind of uh, digital distress. It's, yes. it's not easy. <laughs> yes. Some it, of this so, stuff is, is, is really frustrating. I mean, yes. I, I, would, I would much rather struggle with an oscillating amplifier than then, then this kind of I can't upload the program or the, the bootloader's not correct or you got to get a different version of Arduino or it works with the Nano yes. but not the R3. At least with the oscillating amplifier, you're struggling with the laws of physics instead of the quirks of somebody's code. Am I right? Yes, you're correct. And, and I want to do a, respond to that by um, sharing some information. First of uh, Ben and I, KK6FUT, uh, created a series of articles called the CW Center, and we absolutely were adamant that you use an, a real Arduino Uno R3. D don't, don't put anything else in there because not all Arduinos are, are built the same, the clones especially. Now, recently I bought three Nanos, which, which are really nice, small. They're the size of about two postage stamps, size the size. And I bought them from Amazon, and I got them. I mean, if you buy these, the real Arduino, they're $38. I bought them for like six. So I got three, three boards for $18. And I said, that's half the price <laughs> of a real, honest to goodness, Arduino coming from the factory in Italy. So anyway, uh, I tried the, this latest project to load them, and I kept getting this error message saying, can't find, can't find this piece of hardware. Can't find the driver for it. Well, as it turns out, um, there's a, I think the company's originally in Scotland or Wales that developed this uh, serial interface chip. It's a FTBI. And I think it's future technology something or other. And uh, what happened is the, there are a whole bunch of these counterfeit FTBI chips that are being soldered on these boards. And uh, so they, the FTBI, I guess, went to Microsoft and in the latest download, somehow this is removed. Oh my God. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. This yeah, is it. it's oh. removed. So you, so I couldn't figure out because a couple of months ago I had loaded one nano and it worked fine and it didn't work now. So then I went to uh, YouTube. And there was a guy in Germany says, okay, here's the problem. Here's how to fix it. You manually have to load the COM port information so the serial port will work. I mean, they'll work, just that you need to know that. I and if you don't that. know that. I didn't know that. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't run into the magical guy in Germany yeah. who, who could tell you what the secret incantation yeah. is, yeah. then, you know, yeah. boom. Yeah. But by the way, anybody who's got, got a nano and can't find it, get it to work, do a YouTube search on Unbrick FTDI. Oh, I, <laughs> thought has, gonna, I thought you were going to suggest the, the sacrifice of some chickens. <laughs> no, no, like no, them. no, no. He tells <laughs> you how to, he tells you how to do it manually, and and I did that, and I got the three boards to work. So and, and now every time you plug them in, it recognizes the COM port. 
but all Arduinos are not created equal, and, and there's fantastic bargains. Now, I've got some, what they call the Pro Mini, which is really nice. I paid $2.53 for these, and so I'm saying, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the kind of thing I want to do, but, but it's kind of fraught with exactly what you say. Some of these clones uh, cut corners. They, they don't work. Some of them have counterfeit parts, you know, and they're trying to fix these things so someone doesn't get screwed out of, you know, the engineering and the, the cost of manufacture. So th that is a real problem. Oh, and, and you talk about tribal knowledge. You have these guys, these software guys that know all this stuff. I mean, it's really interesting. Ben is a new ham. This is KK6FUT. So he doesn't have a lot of the tribal knowledge on the build side, but he has a lot of the tribal knowledge on the software side. So I say, oh, yeah, he says, this is how you have to do that, you know, and it just drives me nuts because I said, well, how would you know? And he said, well, you're in the software world. You know that. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, it's no. like us. <laughs> We're no, no, it's, it's like yeah. it, it's like two sub-tribes, all right, or, or, yeah. or di two different yeah. tribes. And I, I had a, an encounter with this uh, this month when uh, Thomas, KK6AHT, he came to Washington. And Thomas is a, a brilliant guy. He's the guy who did the Pacificon minima presentation he built the minima the minima was really his first rig i mean he never really he, he had some smaller projects as a kind of an electronics interested kid but the minima was the first big project that he took on which i found really impressive and he made a really nice presentation at the pacificon thing on uh, on on the minima and a while back he, he said look i'm going to be in washington dc uh, maybe we can get together i said definitely so we we met up in a bar in Roslyn, Virginia, <laughs> Ruby, Ruby Tuesday. So the 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 the, the, uh, the blog entry was two guys in a minimal walk into a bar. <laughs> so there we are. We're sitting in the bar, and Thomas reaches into his bag and pulls out the minima and puts it there between us, and we're looking at it. And it's really his his is really beautiful because he's got the whole board. All the discrete components are built on one piece on, on well, I think on several PC boards, but Manhattan style using me pads from from mm -hmm. rex harper and then he, you could see towards the front panel there's the digital world there's the digital the, the boards the lcd the si 570 the the arduino the atmega chip and all that it's in there and we were both looking at it and at the same time we we both had the same but opposite thought and he said to me pointing to the digital part he goes he goes i really like and feel comfortable with this stuff and I, I pointed to the other part, and I said, I really like and feel comfortable with this stuff. And he looked at me, and he goes, really? He goes, I, I, I just don't get it. He goes, because he said, this stuff over here, pointing to the digital stuff, he goes, it either works or it doesn't. And I said, yeah, but if it doesn't, there's nothing you could do about it. Yeah, yeah. I said, where's the other stuff? Yeah, okay, the other stuff can sort of work. It can halfway work. It can work but oscillate. It can work sometimes but not other times. But you have the chance to go in there and figure it out and nail it down and get it to work right. But it really was for me a kind of a kind of a telling moment where you really do just see the difference in what people are used to. And if you're used to that kind of digital, it all works or it doesn't world, it, the other world is kind of intimidating and vice versa. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, we're kind of a product of, uh, of our experience. And unfortunately, my experience goes... When I was in college, Bill, I had a, an option to take a solid-state design course. <laughs> it was an optional course. Yeah. I mean, the standard course was all vacuum tubes. So, so you know, I'm not sure. I took one, you know. But it's just that we what we grow up with, 
you know, and, and the folks today are growing up in the uh, in the digital world, and it's just like what we learned uh, a long time ago. They're they're learning today. So uh, okay. yeah, a couple of things I, that brings to mind. A couple of things I wanted to mention. One, you know how how recent all this technology is. I mean, we're we're talking about these. You, you know, you going from tubes to solid state, and then analog to digital and all that. With the new amplifier, the day before yesterday I was on, and I spoke to a guy, uh, WA9DNF, his name's Carter. And Carter, we were talking about homebrew stuff, and he said, well, I I used to do a lot of homebrewing, but I can't do it anymore. I'm in a retirement home, and uh, all I can do is get on the air, but I can't really build anything anymore. Then he told me that he was 91 years old. Wow. Yeah. And... uh, but, but still very active on the bands. And then we started talking about his early homebrew projects as a, as a very young kid, which is really getting back to the earliest days of broadcast radio. I mean, the first broadcast station went on the air in the United States in 1925. I think it was KDKA. But I kind of joked with him. I said, you know, I said, Carter, it's really great to talk to somebody who knows which end of the soldering iron to grab. And he kind of laughed and he said, well, he kind of said, well, it was very important. And he told me something that really kind of blew me away. He said that, you know, when, when he first started soldering radio projects, you know, he had to do it in the kitchen because he had to keep his soldering iron close to the stove because his soldering iron was really just a, just a hunk of metal with a wooden handle. And he would stick the, the iron in the flame until it got sufficiently hot. And then he would go and solder the components into the radio that he was building. And I just, you know, I, I, my, my mind flashed forward to us, the, the well, things that we do with surface mount soldering and the isolated soldering irons and, the, the, you know, the, the, the airflow stations and everything else. And here's a guy who can remember when he had to tick, stick the soldering iron in the, in the, in the stove um, I was really quite something. But the other thing was really touching about it was he talked about how he had read in kind of a, a kind of a pop science or a boy's life magazine about how to build a radio from simple components and the, 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 the magical feeling he got when he finally got that thing to work. And that's something that, that hasn't changed in, in in 81 years and it's uh, it's still it's still part of the whole deal so uh, it was kind of cool to talk to carter and reach back to the earliest days of radio yeah that's why a lot of uh, labs were in the kitchen that you pointed out and that's why breadboards <laughs> were used to yeah. build radios it was yeah. handy <laughs> oh no it was handy yeah and you could just grab that i I've, I've got a few on breadboards and that's where the the origin of the term is it's talking about radio history i want to put in a plug here for a, a book that i'm i'm reading and really enjoying it's uh, I've mentioned this on the blog, but it's Walter Isaacson. Isaacson's the guy who did the uh, the bio on Steve Jobs. He also did Ben Franklin. Um, Einstein was, I think, one of his best. But he's now got a book out called The Innovators, and it's about the the people who who gave birth to the digital age. And I I am I tell you I am really enjoying this book. And one of the things I found out is that Walter Isaacson, as a kid, was a ham radio operator, and the as neck. he's got the knack. <laughs> But the, yeah. and, and not only that, as he goes through and describes the, the life stories of all these people who, who were key players in the development of the computer and the Internet, he mentions, without shame, <laughs> he just openly says, that points out that many of them got their start 
in basement workshops as ham radio operators building uh, heath kits and vacuum tube equipment. Either they were the hams or their dads were the hams. But he, he very frequently mentions the connection between ham radio and this advanced technology that we're dealing with right now. There's a quote in the book, though, Pete, and I, I thought of you when I read this. He was talking about when they were making the transition from from tubes to uh, to solid state, because you know the original computers, the ENIAC and all that, were they, they used thousands and thousands of vacuum tubes. But one of the engineers came back and he was looking, and they were discussing which way to go. And he looked at, he kind of squinted, and he said, "Nature abhors a vacuum tube." <laughs> <laughs> I know Grace and Evans over there in Turkey is cringing at this point, but I didn't say it. This guy said it. All right. We don't have any more vacuum tube computers anymore, as far as I know. Although I'm probably going to get mail now saying, oh, yeah, I'm running, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my computer runs 6L6s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, anyway, let's see. What else we got to talk about? Well, well, you know, I just want to mention some of the early computers. Those guys were using tubes, and they were they were really pushing them to the limit. You know, that they actually built them. They used metal tubes, and they built them on on. on pie pans and yeah. and they put the tubes upside down in a bank of water yeah <laughs> so they could cool the tubes yeah that's before you had the, the air conditioning running in there but those things ran so hot so it says okay turn them upside down and Whoops. put them in a bath of water there you go yeah all right listen i think we're approaching the uh the end of our time here pete but we've covered a lot of ground and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna try to tack on here a couple of um of audio clips that were sent to me by chris waldrop uh, KD4 PBJ, very appropriate to what we were talking about because it's about the use of microcontrollers in radio. And uh, Chris went to an event um, this past summer called Three Days in Huntsville, and he got to interview uh, uh, one of the guys who runs Tentech and somebody else who was deeply involved in microcontrollers. And I've been meaning to get it onto the show, but I've been failing to do it, so I'm going to plug it in right now. All right, Bill, I'm here with another... Uh Presenter, uh, Glenn Popeil, yes. uh, who uh, is called is KW5GP. KW5GP, and he uh, uh, wrote a book, a new ARRL book about uh, Arduino, and he gave a presentation. They had a 10 Tech Rebel Buildathon today, so I'll let him talk a little about that. Okay, what the Rebelathon? Yeah. Uh, what we did is we took uh, five 10 Tech Rebels stock from the factory, and in the span of an hour and a half, we modified them and put band switching and. Um, what was this? Oh, we also added an Nokia display, and we put in a, a version of what I call the Universal Shield, and that supports the I2C interfaces and a whole bunch of other stuff. And that could actually be expanded into what we call the Limited Edition Rebel that has GPS built in, text-to-speech, and a little actual... Um, organic uh, graphic display mounted in the front panel. It was a little postage stamp. That display. was a postage stamp that fits in the front panel That's of, great. of the Rebel. And who came up with the code for that? I did. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I, took the, I took the stock code and modified it 100%. Wow. It's very easy to do. How many people participate in the Build-A-Thon? Uh, we had five builders and you know about five more people here. We had John Henry from Tentech overseeing the voiding of his warranties. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we had it. Yeah, you know, we had Tentech here and we had the five builders and within an hour and a half they all got their radios working. Fantastic. How how long have you been uh, doing Arduino? I've been doing Arduino now about four four and a half years. Okay. Um, friend of mine got me into it. Um, said this is right up your alley and it was. I've been doing computers and microcontrollers all my life. Oh, and um, 
So, I mean, I go all... Matter of fact, if you want to go all the way back in your kilobaud microcomputing in 1979, mm-hmm. I was published for an RCA 1802 prior to the interrupt circuit I built. So oh, I've wow. been doing this, you know, 20, 30 years now. Okay. And uh, the Arduino is just a perfect fit for me. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh... Yep, ARRL has my new book. It's called Arduino for Ham Radio. It is due out any day. They are taking pre-orders on their website now. Um, but they said it, they, it was supposed to be here. It didn't make it. And they said it should be out and shipping this week. All right. Thank you very much oh, for your thank, time. Thank you much, Chris. Uh, all right, Bill, I have one more. I have John Henry from Tentech. So, right. hi, John. Is this your first uh, two days in Huntsville? Yes, it is. And uh, what did you do here today? Uh, sold a lot of radios and uh, watched a lot of Arduino stuff. And you helped lead the Buildathon. Yes, I did. I watched the Buildathon. Well, Glenn, Glenn helped. Yeah. yeah, but he also helped to lead the uh, the Tentech Rebel. The uh, Tentech forum Rebel the forum. forum today. Right. Yes, sir. How many people came to that forum? Fifty uh, something. Oh, at least fifty. Wow. At least fifty. And yeah. do you see that as being the new future in ham radio transceivers? For QRP or it, it is a different way for ham radio QRPers. It's a way for uh, what I call the Heathkit kids of today. Okay. And it's the the guys that understand a little bit of programming, they understand a little bit of uh, transceiver, mm-hmm. uh, and they want to add and play and tinker. Awesome. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, Bill. I'm here with Steve Galshoot. Uh, WG0AT? Yeah, some people call me Whiskey Goat or Wireless Goat, um, but it's it's WG0AT. And you're visiting us from Colorado? That's correct. And uh, your first time here at Two Days in Huntsville? First time in Huntsville or Rocket City, and I was amazed at all the aerospace that's down here. I mean, I, if I would have looked looked up uh, Huntsville, I probably you know would have seen some of some of that. But uh, as we drove from the airport to uh, the convention center, um, it was like one aerospace complex after the other. And I was thinking, wow, there must be some, some, uh, some good IQ down here. And you saw the rockets by the interstate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're here to give a, give a talk tonight on your, your uh, travels? Indeed. Okay. Um, going to show a few vi- videos of Rooster and Peanut and yep. uh, our goat adventures and all that. And... Uh, basically have fun with a bunch of QRP buddies. All right. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us. All right. We're approaching that moment where the house is starting to stir. Yes, yes. Out here in the left coast, it's 7 o'clock. Yeah, here on the right coast, it's 10 o'clock, so it's time to go. All right, but listen, uh, thanks for for joining us. Thanks for getting up so early in the morning, and uh, thanks for sharing all these great stories, and we'll uh, we'll, kind of keep keep those projects going, and uh, Keep the, that digital analog integration moving forward, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you. We'll, we'll have to figure out what we're going to talk about next time. I'm sure we'll think yeah, of something. Yeah, the only thing you didn't do today was the plug for the Shameless Commerce Division. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. All right, here we go. Okay, I, I didn't want to do it. But, uh, hey, you know, the solder smoke, The solder, people have been buying the solder smoke book still. So uh, if you if you wanted to do that, 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 that's great. But I also have this, this new book out. It's sort of related to the solder smoke book. And that's called Us and Them. And uh, you, can, you can find it on the blog at uh, uh, soldersmoke.blogspot.com up in the upper left. And the other way uh, that you could help out in the Shameless Commerce Department is anytime you go into Amazon. Christmas is coming. So when you think Amazon, think Solder Smoke. Go to the blog page, soldersmoke.blogspot.com. In the upper right, there's a little link. And if you buy something from Amazon, if you do it through the blog page, cha-ching. 
It, yeah. It eventually turns into two N thirty nine oh fours and toroidal cores here inside of Smoke Headquarters. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me, Pete. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> have a well, good, have a great week. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, seven threes from the left coast. Seven three from Northern Virginia. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!